There's a lot of hype surrounding artificial intelligence in healthcare for sure. What do we even mean when we talk about AI? Healthcare is a very highly regulated space, but how can we even begin to regulate something that is continuously evolving? And what is the future going to hold? We know predictions about the future have been notoriously wrong. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Kathleen Walsh and Ron Schmelzer are managing partners at Cognolytica, an analyst firm focused solely on artificial intelligence. Kathleen and Ron, welcome to the podcast. You two occupy a very unique niche. You do analysis, research, publish, and even podcast exclusively in AI across a variety of industries. Now, could you tell us a little bit about your practice, who your clients are, and what are their concerns? Sure. So Ron and I are both managing partners and principal analysts at Cognolytica, which is an AI-focused research and advisory firm. And about half of our business is public sector. We're based in the D.C. region, so uh, we work with many different agencies, mostly civilian agencies um, in in Washington, D.C. So, you know, GSA, USPS, Department of Energy, Department of Education, the list keeps going, Internal Revenue Service, Department of Treasury. Um, And then about half of our business is with the private sector as well. So we focus on many different industries ranging from retail, banking, insurance, finance, automotive, healthcare as well. Uh, And so we we cover AI uh, very broadly across both of those disciplines. Yeah. And as an analyst firm, the primary thing that we do is we do research on the markets. We cover about 6,000 vendors across 40 some odd reports that we do a year. It (laughs) it keeps growing and growing. We actually were like, I think, five or six reports into it so far this year. And and just like, you know, say a, a traditional analyst firm, we spend a lot of time trying to understand what our customers are doing. Uh, their actual implementation of, of AI. We look at best practices. We also run a training program called CPMAI, which is a methodology for doing AI machine learning projects. It's three days. We also have a virtual version that we do over more a few weeks. Um, and and yeah, rather than we actually don't do implementation. So I think what what differentiates us, say from say a traditional consulting firm, is we won't go in there and build an AI system. Or we won't necessarily go in there and spend long engagement cycles on particular problems, although we do spend time with our customers uh, helping them answer their problems, uh, providing guidance in their t- into their solutions, and sometimes augmenting their advisory, their research uh, uh, team. Uh, and as Kathleen mentioned, we do a lot of additional content. We, we do our AI Today podcast well into 130-some-odd episodes, uh, tens of thousands of, of listeners and downloads across iTunes and uh, Google Play and Spotify and Stitcher and all that good stuff. And we also write for Forbes and Tech Target, uh, contributing writers, and we produce infographics and we speak at events we mm-hmm. run the ai <laughs> government meetup and the ai demo showcase and yep so we so we also have a monthly meetup like ron said in dc that's called the ai and government meetup because we found that a lot of uh you know different agencies in in government were not talking to each other about what they were doing so we thought it was important to have a platform where people from all different levels we get you know senior level cdos cios all the way down to low level implementers come and present at ai and government and then as ron mentioned we're also doing an ai demo showcase that's a monthly event 
Um, and that is where we have vendors come and they get to showcase their technology. That's also in D.C. for now, but we're hoping to expand that soon. Yeah, I find this incredibly fascinating how you're able to work across such a broad array of industries. We're a little bit more focused in healthcare and specifically diagnostics. And what struck me as you were uh, describing your practice is uh, not only the uh, public sector, but the private sector as well. And then in government, just the vast array of different agencies you work with. So can you describe uh, the different needs of public versus private and then even within different sectors of the government? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people think that the government lags with technology. And in some cases, that's true. You know, adoption may be five to 10 years behind. But what we found with artificial intelligence is that they're keeping on par with their counterparts in the private sector. Now, there are some companies that are, you know, very forward thinking with artificial intelligence, and I think they're leading the way in general. But for the most part, government and, you know, companies that are just starting to adopt artificial intelligence seem to be on pace with each other. And, you know, one is not extremely far ahead of the other. In general, I think that the needs are the same. It's just sometimes the execution is a little bit different, meaning that the government may need to deal with different data privacy regulations and laws in ways that, you know, private companies don't need to. But in general, we're seeing artificial intelligence be used for a wide range of things. Honestly, a lot of them are very mundane, you know, document classification, um, text extraction, you know, natural language processing things, chatbots, nothing that's like, wow, oh my gosh, this is so cutting edge. But they're all very useful and they're saving a lot of resources, whether that's uh, man hours, whether that's money. So, you know, the the applications uh, can be utilized and, and spread out throughout, you know, many different mm-hmm. Uh, agencies and companies as well. You see a trend there. Yeah, and, and likewise in private industry, especially in banking, insurance, and finance, they're always adopting technology at the leading edge because they're primarily actually technology companies. I mean, think about what is the actual physical asset of most banks. It's sitting in databases mostly, like you know, the actual right. physical currency had, hasn't been passing hands in many, many years, especially stocks, stock trading. It's like, so, so these technology firms are, are trying to gain competitive advantage with things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is actually really based on extracting value from data. And many other industries are like that too, uh, across healthcare, as you know, and uh, the industries around you know, manufacturing and retail and pharmaceutical and energy. Every industry is is being is faced with this transformative technology that is artificial intelligence. I think that's an interesting point. No matter what space you're in, you can also make the argument that in some way you're also a technology company as well. Now, how did you two go about developing this unique expertise? We've been interested in this space and artificial intelligence for quite some time. Prior to actually starting Cognolytica, Ron and I both ran Tech Breakfast, which was a monthly demo showcase for companies to come and demo their technology. And we started to see that a lot of companies were moving more towards artificial intelligence. They had AI in their applications or they, you know, were looking towards going here. It started specifically around voice applications. So we said, oh, this is interesting. I think that there's a, you know, need in the market that we can fill and we had interest in it. 
So we said, let's go and move forward with that. And we've been in this space for a few years now and continue to learn and grow every day. Thing. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, I actually had another analyst firm called ZapThink, which was focused on enterprise architecture, service-oriented architecture, the big movement in the early part of the 2000s, um, which has become a thing now. Everybody's familiar with microservices and and now, of course, containerized infrastructure and all that sort of good stuff. And that that grew pretty large. That company was acquired by by another firm, uh, Developed Technologies. And prior to that, I was at MIT. I actually had a, a startup company called ChannelWave, which was focused on the e-commerce space, especially on the B2B e-commerce space. And prior to that, I was at MIT, and my uh, undergraduate academic advisor was Rodney Brooks, who was, uh, and I was all interested in AI. When I, when I came into MIT in the mid-90s, I was very interested in AI personally, but it was, it was still the domain, up until very recently, the domain of researchers. It was a place where researchers went, and you know, a lot of thought was being put into it. And at the time, actually, neural networks was on the downswing. Yeah. Uh, but I was still very much interested okay. in it, but I didn't actually put, put my career into it until much, much later. I see. Yeah, we're out in, out in California here. We kind of think Silicon Valley is the epicenter of all things. But as I'm doing this podcast, I'm meeting more and more people from the Boston area and realizing what a hotbed and what a hub of activity in technology, healthcare, and just a variety of industries. That's fantastic. Now, I think we're oftentimes enamored by or in awe or confused by technology and AI is definitely a very hot area. Uh, so what do you two think are some of the uh, misconceptions or things that people just have flat wrong about artificial intelligence? I think a few years ago, people were talking about artificial general intelligence much more than they are now. We actually had uh, Nick Thompson, who's the wire the editor-in-chief at Wired on our podcast recently, and he said that he was noticing that as well. People were talking about, you know, what could you do if you have this uh, machine that's able to act and think and be just like a human? And as we're starting to see applications more and more in real life, those conversations are taking a back seat, not going away, but taking a back seat to what can I do with narrow applications and what can I do now with the technology that we have, not what can I do in 5, 10, 100 years from now. So I think that some of that you know, misconception that artificial general intelligence will be here sooner rather than later is starting to go away. Yeah, I think the other, other big thing is, is that uh, there's still a lot of misunderstanding about AI. When two different people talk about AI, they may not necessarily be talking about the same thing. And that's why we've started spending more time on what we call the seven patterns of AI. Uh, which are the, the things that people are trying to do with AI systems, and those are conversational systems like chatbots and voice assistants, recognition systems, as we may be familiar with, like with image recognition and, and all the other forms of unstructured data recognition, patterns and anomalies, so that's a whole other thing for detecting patterns or detecting anomalies to patterns. Then there's predictive analytics, which is machines trying to help us make better decisions and spot those trends. Then we have what we call the autonomous pattern, which we, we might think of it as autonomous vehicles, but there's lots of situations situations where machines are independently doing things uh, without humans in the loop, right? Whether it's software automation, hardware automation, all sorts of things, but they're enabled with intelligence. So the autonomous pattern, making them more autonomous. Then we have what's called goal hyper-personalization, which is the ability for systems to find and, and build things in for individual people, build the profile of the individual, which is definitely in medicine, the whole idea of personalized medicine 
uh, builds from this idea of that hyper-personalized profile. And then finally, goal-driven systems. We might think of it as machines that can play games, but it's basically machines that can find the optimal scenario uh, for, for something. And those are together the seven patterns. So when two people say AI, I was like, well, what, what are you specifically talking about? Right. And that it does help the conversation a, a little bit better. Yeah, I think that is very helpful because I think the term intelligence is so nebulous and it does call to mind something what Kathleen is describing as a general intelligence, but I think breaking it down kind of gives you actually a more realistic picture of what tasks we're able to perform today using AI. Now, what caught my attention about you two is you've recently published on regulatory aspects around AI. People in healthcare are very much interested in this, and you might even say or feel that healthcare is a very highly regulated industry, perhaps more so than others. And, you know, my big overarching question is just how do you go about regulating AI that is a system that's roughly defined as something that can evolve and integrate previous uh, learnings into future decisions? How can something that's continuously evolving even begin to be regulated? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And we recently published our world worldwide laws and regulation report because we wanted to see what countries were doing right now. Uh, you know, had they thought about laws? Do they have any in place? And if so, what were they around? So we looked at nine general areas. And what we found is that most countries are taking a, you know, wait and see approach to see exactly how this technology will be adopted and used and implemented. Right now, I think it's a little too early to build you know, very robust laws and regulations around AI, especially for fields that are very heavily regulated. So for now, what we always suggest is keep the human in the loop. You know, in the United States, there's only one AI system that's allowed to diagnose for retinopathy, I think. So that's it. Of everything that we've built, everything else needs to be an augmented intelligence approach where the human is always the person who makes the final call. So if we have, you know, with radiology images, that's being talked about a lot lately where we have computer vision systems that are able to go in, find, you know, spot tumors, spot anomalies in pictures, but they're not actually able to fully diagnose the patient. The human needs to go in and be the second set of eyes and actually give the diagnosis. So that's where we are right now. And we're not saying don't use the technology, but we're saying if use it with a human in the loop. And let's see how it evolves. Yeah, and th there's basically a, a couple of ways of thinking about the legal framework. There's there are those we call permissive laws because the laws that exist right now just aren't appropriate. Like this is the case with autonomous vehicles. If you think of the road, the laws of the road and the and traffic regulations, they're not built for nobody behind the wheel. Right, right, <laughs> right or right. or not even having a right. steering wheel. <laughs> or or the, the issues of insurance and things like that. So we need to actually build laws to allow the use of driverless cars, basically self-driving cars in our in our existing environment. Then you have the raft of prohibitive laws, which is looking at AI and saying, oh, we don't want to allow this to happen. So for example, there's a lot of laws emerging around banning the use of facial recognition because of many of the issues around facial recognition. We have a lot of laws around data privacy, prevent, you know, uh, providing for, for the sharing and storage of data, uh, rules around lethal autonomous weapons. You might think, wow, that's very RoboCop, Terminator, you know, looking out into the future. But people are already saying, well, wait a second, let's put the laws in now because it's kind of hard to put the laws in later. So after it's already been yeah. built and out there. You no, know, so so and, and there's like it's, 
mentioned there's all these categories, and there's a, there's this general philosophy that people are trying to build a regulatory framework around algorithmic decision making, which is what a lot of this comes down to. And some of it has nothing to do with AI, which is that if you're going to build an algorithm that will take some of the responsibility away from the human to make a decision, what are the laws that we need to have in place to enable that or to prevent bad things from happening, to provide transparency? And a lot of this stuff kind of uh, filters to that, in which case it's not really AI specific. Now, this is an incredibly fascinating area. So, I mean, let me just ask you this. In the future, so right now, people might be a little skittish, a little nervous. They're wondering, well, am I going to be replaced by a robot or an AI system? Is AI going to make all the decisions in the future? I mean, are we ultimately headed towards that type of scenario where decisions are made by AI and human beings are replaced? And are we right now in some kind of temporary state of flux, part one. And then part two is if we're in this state of flux and you have these, you have AI support, so to speak, so the human beings making the ultimate decision, but with support, could that not weaken the performance of the human being as they become more dependent on AI support? So what we always say at Cognolytica is that AI is not a job killer, but it's a job category killer. So like with any you know, transformative technology, there will be jobs that disappear, but then there's jobs that are created as well. If you look at the 1960s, there were rooms of secretaries and file cabinets, and those were replaced by computers. So will be the case with some other jobs as well, maybe truck drivers, for example. But we'll have jobs that we never thought of. Back in the 1960s, we didn't have social media marketers. And now a lot of people have that as their job title. The work will shift, you know, and, and jobs will be created. And then as far as humans using AI as an augmented intelligence tool, I think that that will continue to happen. People have argued that with new technology, we've lost sight of some of the things. No longer can we navigate by the stars, for example. Or if, you know, I don't know that I'd be able to survive in the woods by myself. I'm not a survivalist and I don't know how to hunt and gather and do all those things because I don't need to anymore. But have we as society become less smart because of that or less self-sufficient because of that? Have we not survived? And the answer is no. Of course we've survived and we've thrived because of Mm -hmm. that. And things... Things like disease have gone away in some cases or lessened in in other cases. And we don't die. We don't have infant mortality rates nearly as high as we did 300 years ago. So some things get better when we use technology. Yeah. You know, there, there is that sort of, we, we, we sort of classify these issues around AI into fears and concerns. And you might think that these words fears and concerns are actually synonyms, but they're actually really not. Fears are kind of emotional, right? Because people could be afraid of heights or be afraid of the swimming or be afraid of whatever, or bees, and you can't rationally say like, why are you afraid of the, this stuff, you know? But, but they're legitimate. People have fears. You can't dismiss people's fears. Then you have concerns which are based on like some little bit of fact. It might be a concern of lack of transparency in the case of AI. It may be a concern about the concentration of decision making in people's hands. Maybe the concern of malicious activity. You could try to address, you can't make those concerns completely go away, but you could try to address them. And so what we're seeing happening here in this framework around AI is you, you address the fears by basically providing alternatives to fears and say, okay, well, you could be afraid of your job, but being afraid of losing your job is not going to change anything. 
So instead, <laughs> let's give you control over. Let you know, basically, the, especially when you see this is actually not quite AI. There's a movement towards something called robotic process automation, which is the introduction of software automation that sort of uh, it's not quite intelligent, but it but basically repeats human activities. And people say, "Oh, wait a second! I spent half of my time doing that particular task, <laughs> or maybe even eighty percent of my time doing it." So now, if you take this task away from me and you give it to a machine, I'm going to lose my job. And we tell people, "It's like there's a difference between your work and your job. Your job is to maybe make customers happy, but the things that you do at work, eighty percent of it may or may not be the thing that's that's doing your job." And there's there's this well-known Amazon paradox, which is that as Amazon was increasing the amount of automation in their warehouses and distribution facilities, they were actually increasing their hiring rate, which you might think would be at odds with each other: increase of automation, decrease of human participation. But that's not what happened. They just reassigned people that were driving forklifts around the workshops, you know, their sort of their warehouses. They put them into one-hour delivery and. Of course, that's given them even more of a competitive advantage. So, a lot of different ways of thinking about these these various different issues. Yeah, you're right. I guess that is somewhat counterintuitive. Corporations and futurists are often given to platitudes along those lines, such as, "Well, we want to free you up to focus on more lofty tasks, right? Let's automate the more mundane tasks." But my question is, won't we ultimately run out of lofty tasks? Um, not necessarily. We seem to constantly come up with it. I mean, I'm thinking to myself. <laughs> What philosopher in the, let's say, let's go, I don't know how far back to go, the 1960s, the 1930s, the 1890s would have ever thought of the emergence of Instagram influencers <laughs> or YouTube influencers. They certainly seem to somehow keep their entire lives occupied by doing stuff. And somehow that sort of lofty goal, I guess, uh, has emerged. <laughs> so I, I like never seem to uh, tire of the creativity of humans to find things to do. And you know whether it's tackling things like environmental challenges or issues of poverty, those are definitely lofty goals, you know. Or it could be more mundane things of just keeping people entertained. <laughs> we, right. we humans will will find ways to do it. One aspect of this also is trying to envision what the future is going to look like, you know, so we can set ourselves up for what the world of work and our personal lives are going to look like. But it seems to me that predictions of the future are often wrong and very wrong. Like you go back to the 50s and 60s and look at supposedly what the vision of the future might have been. It doesn't seem like we're living in the Jetsons world. There was actually an article about this, like where are my flying cars, yeah. uh, right? Exactly. And, and and people are saying, well, wait a second, we were promised all these things. You you watch in the movies. Uh, oh, and Back to the Future, actually. If you watch right. Back to the Future, I think it's it's it's, it's it, well, it's made in 1985, and the future is like 2005 or something like that, or a little later, almost to around now. I'm not exactly sure when. And you look at it, and it's what they envisioned. So there were fax machines in the in the vision of the future then. And that's because that's the technology that they had at the time. So they made it a little bit more futuristic, but that was what right. they envisioned. But at the same time, we had flying cars, you know, <laughs> and Mr. Fusion machines and hoverboards. And a lot of holograms. Yeah. And so like, where are the holograms? We're really bad at predicting flying cars. I mean, like from the Jetsons <laughs> to like, you know, uh, Blade Runner, you know, it's like we, we constantly think like, yep, we're just around the corner from flying cars. Mm -hmm. Wally. I mean, that wasn't a car, but like, oh, that, we can't live on Earth anymore. That's why that's why that article is written. like, where are my flying cars? It's like you keep promising me flying cars. Meanwhile, all we have now is the the, the edge of innovation. 
optimization for vehicles are cars that can drive themselves and moving away from gas to electric. And I guess that's kind of where we are. But as far as like, you know, the, these lofty visions for the future and where we want things to be, especially with AI, this is why we come back to this idea of, you know, where are my flying cars, which is like everybody, people want to talk about the super intelligence. We want to talk about machines that are going to take over the world. Meanwhile, we say, have you talked to Alexa or Siri lately? It's like, you kind of know what the edge of innovation is here. If like these companies that are pumping tons of money into making artificial intelligence work can barely understand the concept of a sandwich, I, I, I think we're kind of like looking at the edge of innovation here. <laughs> Speaking of getting things wrong, I think you two recently posted an article that really resonated with me and it said, are we focusing on the wrong thing, uh, specifically in data science? I guess the thesis was, is there something materially different about AI in terms of data mining, data drudging? and performing statistics? Or is it just an increase in computing power that people are calling AI? That is, the, do we now have the ability to run various experiments in massively parallel ways so we can, press, can compress the time to discovery and experimentation? Is there something just that's materially different that, that AI is able to do? Or have we been focusing on the wrong thing? Yeah, I think I'll chime in this first, and I know Kathleen has a lot to, to chime in here as well, which is that uh, this was, uh, we did an interview actually a while ago. It was one of our earlier AI Today podcast interviews we did with uh, Dr. Louis Paris Breva, Professor Louis Paris Breva, who is at um, MIT. And, and he, he made this claim that he goes, well, all this stuff that we're doing is really good. You know, this machine learning is, which is the edge of kind of where we are right now with artificial intelligence, is showing a lot of great results. But he kind of likens it to big data and math kind of magic, which is, or not magic, but kind of like, you know, like stage tricks. He goes, if we have a lot of data, a lot of it, and we have a great algorithm, then we can generalize through the power of statistics. But is that really learning? Is, mm -hmm. is like applying statistics to big right. data, even though it works very well, you know, it recognizes images and, and it's really good at speech and, and does all these things. Right. Have we actually accomplished intelligence or have we just sort of figured out this one parlor trick that's maybe the word that i was looking for maybe. this one parlor trick really well and so he's saying you know this we may not actually be getting our anyway anywhere closer to ai we just might be basking in the glory of big data and great algorithms right yeah and it was a really interesting way to think about this because not everybody shares in his perspective it was really interesting to hear him talk about that now i mean I, everybody says you know data is at the heart of ai and the more data that you have the better so to his point if you just continue to throw more data at a problem will you eventually find patterns in that data and be able to make some prediction off of that are you actually learning from it, though, is another question. Right, because his point, he goes, if it was really all about data and you look at sort of the human brain, you'd expect the human brain to be crammed with, like, literally zettabytes upon zettabytes upon zettabytes of data because we can do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, we can drive cars, we can invent things, we can create, we can talk. You and I, we can have this conversation on this podcast without having to, to go into, like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm into some territory where my brain doesn't have that learning thing. So he's like, he's like saying, it's like, well, right now people believe that the secret to more intelligence, and actually this is somewhat of a side criticism of open AI, is that if we just had enough data, 
we can crack this nut of intelligence. He goes, maybe it's actually the opposite. Maybe it's finding out what we can do if we did not have data. That is the secret of intelligence trying to figure out this general idea of generalizing systems because we have, there's something about intelligence that allows us to generalize in the face of not having lots of data. It's an interesting thought experiment because clearly we don't have an answer to that. It's not like, oh, well, we should be, instead of doing this, we should be doing that. Well, we don't have the that right now. All we have right now are these three forms of machine learning, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. We don't have any other new trick. Right. Um, and unfortunately, all of those, uh, with maybe the exception of reinforcement learning, are highly dependent on lots and lots of data. I think there's this notion that we're going to transcend human intelligence. I wonder how are we going to be able to do that by developing things that right now are ostensibly less intelligent than people. And then it seems to me very much that maybe what we're really just talking about is an increase in computing power. Or is it that AI systems and robots don't have the emotional component of humans and that they're somehow able to give the appearance of performing at a higher level but really maybe it's just taking the human factor out of the equation. Yeah, I'll jump in this. I know Kathleen has something to say on this as well. It's actually interesting. We have a pair of articles. So this thing with Louis, uh, Dr. Professor Louis Perez Brave, it was, we recorded that podcast a while ago, but then we sort of resurfaced it in this Forbes article piece because there was a second Forbes article piece that came out afterwards. That was an interview with, with Dr. Alex Wisner-Gross, who's another MIT or Harvard professor. And he has this really interesting thing, which was on a, a related but, but actually unrelated note where he's talking about, well, we don't quite understand what biological intelligence is. Forget about artificial intelligence. Yeah. We don't really know what, what intelligence is. And he has a, he has a theory, uh, uh, well, the goal of intelligence intelligence that the, the evolution he thinks of it as an evolutionary advantage why aren't we all bacteria floating around in a big soup you know well there's a reason why we have these intelligent beings and he says it must be related to some evolutionary advantage and he goes well the evolutionary advantage to having intelligence is that you're in control of your future that you can make decisions that change the future if you're a bacteria in a soup and that soup is cranking up in temperature, there's nothing you can do about it. You're just gonna be floating happily around until one day you're no longer floating happily around. You're dead. But as, but as like intelligent, more intelligent um, creatures, we can basically respond to change in time cycles that are shorter than evolution. Because usually the way that uh, organisms and things like that respond to change is that, well, the, the, the weak die and the strong survive, and then over many, 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 many generations, eventually now this organism becomes stronger. He goes, well, that's great if you have many, many generations to evolve, but what if you are trying to evolve within the, the course of like a couple of hours? Well, you're, you're not going to just evolve in hours. So he thinks that the, the evolutionary advantage of intelligence is the ability to respond to change in these shorter cycles. Interesting philosophy that kind of relates back to this Louis uh, Paris Brave issue because maybe the intelligence thing is not about the data. It's about figuring out this adaptation thing, which we haven't quite figured out. Right. The, ro the robots might have it on us there, you know, because they're not physically aging, but then they can evolve more quickly. Yeah, that, I mean, that's actually part of the theory of, of DeepMind, mm -hmm. uh, which is now part of Google, was that they, they believe that a lot of the keys to intelligence are in reinforcement learning, which is this trial and error business. Or the goal-driven patterns of AI that we talk about, too. So that they're learning through trial and error and that you can learn anything that way. Now, we always say, yes, that, but that's one approach. So, you know, is supervised learning, unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning the right way to get to this artificial general intelligence? We're not sure yet. DeepMind thinks that it's through, um, you know, reinforcement learning, but we're still not there yet. 
Well, Kathleen, Kathleen and Ron, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. So just one more question before we wrap up. So we talked about artificial intelligence and regulatory concerns. And I think kind of one step removed from that is this issue of ethics surrounding AI. And in healthcare, one area of concern seems to be once you have these AI systems that are in some way making decisions, is it ever ethical to disagree with a decision generated by AI? Which strikes me as very quixotic because I always say, well, is it ever ethical to disagree with a colleague or another human being? Of course, you do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, as systems continue to get better and are able to help, you know, humans make diagnoses and, you know, act as a second set of eyes, help with surgeries. You can think of a whole bunch of use cases for how AI could help with healthcare. But yes, I think absolutely we should be questioning the decisions that these systems make, especially if we don't agree with them. We still need doctors. We still need them to be trained and educated and you know this is not something that just anybody can walk right into as doctors continue to evolve in the field and you know they may learn how to work side by side with ai systems but absolutely they should be questioning them i think that that is part of the ethics of being a doctor i think it's kind of interesting because you think about sort of the history of of medicine it's actually evolved quite a bit over the next last 150 or so odd years. It wasn't very long ago that people operated without anesthetics, right? You know, oh, yeah. yeah and, and the overlap. Or washing hands. <laughs> exactly. And the overlap between, you know, the barber, dentist, and surgeon was uh, pretty high, right? It's like, oh, barber, dentist, surgeon, they all do the same thing, kind of just chop things apart. And and it's sort of like a lot of things that we thought of as like the ethical way, perhaps, to do medicine in the 1800s would now be looked as terribly barbaric and, and incorrect. And I'm sure that's going to say, we're going to go 100 years from now, we're going to be like, I can't believe people actually used radiation to just look at people's bones. Can you believe how crazy <laughs> that idea is? And, or like, you know, I can't believe that, you know, we just did not understand how cancer works. And people were just, you know, dying because we just basically attacked cancer through like really harmful, toxic chemicals and did all these things. And, and I refer to it as if I'm in the future because unfortunately <laughs> I'm not. I'm not in the future. I'm here right now in the present. But but I'm kind of hoping we're going to be at that point. And I think part of this ethical, some of these things do, do have like real societal ethical concerns. Cloning humans. Yeah, that's probably not going to end up well. Um, <laughs> probably, not. probably not. You know, other things like, you know, uh, gen genetic control over, over, over all, anything related. Actually, to be honest, there's a lot more concerns around genes than, than AI in my, my perspective. I think genetic stuff has a lot more areas of concern. But I think this other stuff is going to be real helpful. The extent to which AI, people see AI as a tool and the toolkit as like something that, especially since we're talking about, we don't even really know how intelligence works. So let's just think about it as better tools. And how can these better tools help the field of medicine improve in ways and discover things that may really be the key to, to solving some of these problems that we can't quite figure out today. Well, Ron and Kathleen, uh, how can folks learn more about you and Cognolytica? Uh, so you can go to Cognolytica.com, which is C-O-G-N-I-L-Y-T-I-C-A. And we have um, all of our research on there, as well as our podcasts, our AI Today podcast. And you can also find our AI Today podcast, as we said at the beginning, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can always reach out to us as well at team at cognolitica.com. 
Our guests have been Kathleen Walsh and Ron Smelzer from Cognolytica. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.